Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Antifada. I'm Sean KB, and I'm here with a solo episode today. Uh, my two compatriots are both actually right now at the uh, Gamergate Rebellion. They're manning the barricades on behalf of retail investors uh, everywhere. So that's where Jamie and uh, Andy are. But in order to help me with this episode, I have an excellent guest. I have political economist Jason Smith, the author of smart machines and service work automation in the age of stagnation jason smith what's up man uh doing well from california yeah must be nice to be here with you yeah no likewise i kind of wish i was there with you the uh (laughs) uh, snow is coming we're gonna have like two three days yeah i I read about that yeah it rained here uh it rains once a year here um in los angeles and and that happened uh on thursday so uh i think it's you know 11 months of of sunshine and uh, beaches for us from now on. So I've heard rumors that um, what the first, the first, the, the only day of the year it rains in Los Angeles, there's like a 150% increase in car accidents because nobody can drive in the rain there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, people um, forget that you know, like the car has brakes or what have you. So yeah, I think it's true. I think it's true. I'll just maybe stay off those roads, you know, for for a couple of days. But uh, I'm not planning on doing much in the snow, to be honest. But I'm happy it's here. I'm not sure if it's a climate thing or just a weather thing, but I've been missing the snow the last couple of years, so we're back. Yeah, it, it doesn't snow that often in, in New York, I guess, right? Like uh, I know I was in upstate New York at one point in my life, and uh, it snowed like relentlessly for about eight or nine months, and so I just assume that's what happens in New York City, but I guess not. I mean, I I'm not sure how much of this is like. Um, uh, what should we call it, the Mandela effect or how right. much of it is, um, is, is, right. is reality. But I feel like when I was a kid, it used to snow a lot more. I mean, what are we like a Celsius higher than average at this point right. uh, across right, the right. globe? So that might be affecting it. But also, too, of course, like uh, climate change makes the weather just crazy. So I think maybe some years we'll, we'll get a little bit or no snow at all, and then we'll probably get hammered by some giant giant blizzards. Yeah, it's like it's the volatility the volatility of the weather sort of is kind of aggravated or exacerbated, right? It's not that there's a single trend, but rather a kind of uh, fluctuation in the weather, something like that. Right. As a very complex system, it doesn't just get like one degree hotter. Right, exactly. exactly. Well, Jason, um, I think before we get into uh, this discussion of, um, of crisis and automation and service work and everything, I wonder if uh, over the years you and I have actually ever met in person because we kind of hang out in the same sort of like international communist milieu, you know, of uh, yeah. thinkers and commies. And I feel like at some point we must have crossed paths. What do you think? Uh, you know, I was thinking about this myself and I was thinking that um, we have a lot of you know friends in common and that we probably met in, in New York City in 2010 that was what i that's my conclusion i arrived at um uh i'm not entirely sure that happened but i think it might have been at the hm conference in new york Ah. in 2010. uh there were a number of people from california that were there and it was right after the the kind of university occupations in the fall of 2009 um and i think there was a kind of convergence of people that were uh, from the new school, for example, and, and people from the West Coast. And I might have been sort of somehow involved in that uh, that sort of situation. And so we probably met if we met at that moment. So, And maybe online as well, you know, these things are I mean, hard to keep track of. 
you're one of my favorite uh, people to to post with online. So if anything oh, else, we've come together on Twitter, you know. So yeah, it, you know, it's amazing because you you uh, you very nicely mentioned my book in a post, and suddenly, like I, I had like you know <laughs> like a twenty percent you know <laughs> increase in followers. So that was pretty uh, weird and exciting. So well, I'm I'm happy to uh, pass along any clout I may have accrued by shit posting over the last several years. Happy well, to share yeah. in that wealth. I appreciate Did, it. Were you were you not at uh, historical material uh, materialism London in in 2019? I was indeed, I indeed. Were you there as well? Because I was sitting next to Andy actually at a dinner, and I think you might have been there as well. But we were separated by yeah by, yeah. by you know a, a, it was a large group, maybe 20, 30 people, and it was a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, I was I, I maybe we must have somehow crossed paths there as well. Yeah, I think I think so. I I, I remember. It was a good time. There was a lot of people. That's probably the Turkish restaurant you're talking about. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Paul. Paul was there too. I think you're an old friend of Paul's as mm -hmm. well. Um, we talked about you, and so uh, yeah, it was that big big gathering. Yeah. Yeah. Paul Maddock and I were actually staying at the hotel. But this is now getting into like interpersonal gossip yeah, between yeah, us. Yeah. But, so let's uh, let's get into the heart of it, into the into the meat of the matter, which is a an excellent book that. Uh, of yours that I just had the chance to read called Smart Machines and Service Work, Automation in an Age of Stagnation. Um, I found it to be extremely enlightening and I thought that it would be great for the listeners too uh, to kind of work through some of the ideas that you play with in this book uh, right. for, for a lot of reasons, right? It's a, it, why don't you give an introduction of it, uh, of, of what you try to do in this book, and then we can talk about maybe what it'll mean for folks listening to this episode, and then I think we can talk through as it goes on the the conclusions that might arise from this. I so, think, yeah. so what's uh, what's up with the book? Well, I guess the book is, you know, the, the origin of the book is basically, or the starting point of the book, I think, is this idea that I sort of was confronted with about two, three, four years ago that there was an enormous kind of like wave of, of rhetoric around automation. And in particular, there were two different sort of features of this discourse. One of them was that we were going to, we were either in the process of this massive technological transformation or that we were on the cusp of a technological transformation that was going to mm. totally remake the economy, right? And the idea was that fundamentally that was going to be an explosion in labor productivity growth. And as a result, the, the sort of corollary of that was that because fewer and fewer workers are going to be needed to produce the same amount of output, or indeed uh, a massive, you know, sort of increase in output as well, would nevertheless, um, because of these productivity gains, would require um, less and less uh, labor inputs, that there would be this kind of mass unemployment that would be the result of these, this sort of technological breakthrough. And it was going to be called automation, but there were lots of other ways that sometimes people described it as well. Um, and so those are the two sort of, the sort of, I guess, core claims of the kind of what I call like sort of the rhetoric around automation um, that sort of emerged around 2011, 2012, 2013. Now, of course, the, the, the fundamental question for me was this kind of disconnect between what I was actually seeing around me and what everyone else was seeing around them and the claims that were being made by by these, uh, you know, these popularizers of a, of a certain kind of discourse around automation, and so what I saw instead was a was a you know an economy uh, across North America and Western Europe that was completely devastated by the 2008 crisis, right. and one that in some sense never quite recovered from that crisis. And there were a lot of lot of you know there were a lot of indices that allowed you to, despite the official uh, the official declaration that the recession was over in 2009. 
or whatever it was, late 2009, I think. Um, nevertheless, all the key indicators suggested that we were still locked into this kind of devastating crisis, which was unrelenting uh, over the course of really a decade. And so for me, that's really the starting point in terms of the question that I wanted to, to sort of examine was why was there this disconnect between the rhetoric around automation and what we were actually seeing around us. And um, I guess that led to a whole series of questions, right? I mean, in terms of um, uh, wage stagnation and the relationship between labor productivity, the, the stagnation labor, labor productivity gains and its relationship to wage stagnation, which is something that, again, that is a kind of indicator of a, of a crisis that's not simply, you know, 10 years old, but or, or hasn't lasted 10 years. It's really lasted for 40, 50 years. Right. Um, and this also leads to a, a, a number of sort of sort of more theoretical questions about the service sector, for example, and, and whether or not service sector or the idea of services or a kind of service economy is a kind of pertinent or interesting way to look at what's happening uh, across the economy. And, um, and then the question of productivity itself becomes a kind of central question in the book, right, in terms of how mainstream economists characterize and measure it and how, for example, a, a more kind of value theory oriented approach might look at the question of productivity. So that's that's kind of the starting point uh, in terms of where the book sort of set from the point from which the book sets out. And, and I think that, um, of course, I arrive at the end of the book um, with some thoughts on class struggle and class composition and that sort of thing, which maybe we'll get to later. Yeah, yeah, no, that's uh, a good summation of uh, of the book, and I think the stakes of it are um, are are interesting for our listeners because you mentioned the service economy, and so yeah. much is said about a post-industrial, you know, American capitalism, and by I think the measures you put in the book, something like seventy or eighty percent of economic or of jobs are meant to be in this service sector, which is yeah. very obviously encompassing of large parts of the economy. But for a lot of our listeners out there. Probably almost all of them, with the exception of like my fellow uh, construction workers right. out there, <laughs> who uh, I love you so much. You guys are the best. Um, most people probably out there listening to this work in the service sector. And I think a question that everybody should be asking themselves is, why am I working? Why am I employed in this kind of activity? And how and how come, you know, by and large, the wages and the benefits of that are much lower than people might have expected maybe 40 or 50 years ago had they been working in a different sector. So I think right. that's that, that's an important question that, that we need to get to for people to understand their own material position. And then I think, you know, even broader than that, it's become very clear at least the last five or six years. We're really going back to, as you said, 2008, that uh, the United States uh, is a very, very sick society. Yeah. <laughs> it's a deeply, deeply sick society. And there's common explanations for that, which are, you know, the, the most recent one was it's, uh, it's Trump and Trumpism that's ca causing all these yeah. distortions in American uh, pol politics and the economy, or from the other end that it's, um, you know, shape-shifting, multidimensional, uh, pedophiliac uh, cabals <laughs> yeah. right? and right, sure. cultural Marxism, you know, that, that famous yeah. refrain. But even the more, even the, the answers that get somewhat closer to the truth are ones, this blanket term globalization, yeah, which, um, you know, is a very pat answer, but it doesn't really explain the process by which that comes about and the kind of like um, the actual consequences of it. Because It's not merely that capital is now globalized. What is capital doing at home? And then I think the last one that, that we can point to that almost gets there is this thing called neoliberalism. 
Right. People want to blame neoliberalism, but what is neoliberal neoliberalism? Is it just an ideology? Is it a is it a method of uh, of governance? Is it uh, just setting certain rules for the economy? So I think that you know that your book is really good at getting to I think a deep and fundamental sickness in America and indeed Western Europe and the world um, that uh, like the actual um, where that's actually coming from. So maybe speak a little bit about how uh, labor productivity uh, and a, and a and decline rate of profit uh, have been affecting things uh, in the in America for the last 12 to 40 years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it is it is really 12 to 40, right? I mean, I think that um, I think that you know it's it's a complicated question, and we'll have to sort of circle around back to some of these things. I mean, I think that one of the things I don't do in the book is try to characterize the present moment. Um, using this or that kind of term, although I do, one of the terms that you didn't mention, which I, I think is sometimes handy as a kind of shorthand is the idea of deindustrialization, right? Which is the idea that a smaller and smaller fraction of the workforce is employed in industry, broadly speaking, which includes construction, um, but it might also include mining and, and uh, of course, manufacturing and that sort of thing. And so that what you see is that more and more, um, particularly as a result of the, the actual kind of dynamism of the post-war economy in which automation, particularly of sectors like automobile manufacturing, but also steel and these kind of major sort of core uh, sort of motors of the economy uh, were sort of um, automated in a kind of way that in some sense establishes a pattern which which now is being thought of as being uh, a kind of historical um, yeah, pattern that could be replicated in the service sector. So the point is that that there's a process in the post-war period where there were massive labor productivity gains, um, certainly in the US, uh, probably even more so in Western Europe, um, France, Germany, Italy, so on and so forth. And especially in the, you know, in Japan, where you saw like just like 10% labor productivity gains per year, you know, annually over the course of like a quarter of a century, which mm. is insane when you think about it. Of course, the, the Chinese um, trajectory is, is relatively similar as well, but, um, but that's the kind of moment where there was this kind of broad automation of the, the manufacturing sector. And what's interesting about that process is we didn't see mass unemployment, right? Mm. Um, to the contrary, I mean, there were, there were kind of, you know, something like what mainstream economists would call full employment throughout that period in, in the US um, up to maybe the, you know, again, mid 1970s um, where things get really, really, um, uh, complicated and um, things start to sort of unravel in some sense. So, um, so in some sense, there's this process of deindustrialization where more and more labor is not sort of like, you know, remaindered and sort of like mm. dumped into this bucket of so-called mass employment, even though, of course, in the 50s, there was a lot of like rhetoric around that prospect. Uh, for example, if you read Friedrich Pollock's book called Automation, from 1955 to six, um, he talked. He quotes lots of sources. I, I mentioned some of them in the book, uh, at the beginning of the book. Um, uh, he quotes lots of people from labor unions and from you know kind of uh, the you know um, industrialists and so on and so forth. Uh, politicians in the Senate. They had Senate hearings about automation, uh, and he quotes people uh, constantly, sort of uh, wringing their hands about this this prospect of mass unemployment. But of course, that didn't happen. Uh, what happened instead was there was this massive reallocation of labor away from these kind of high productivity sectors to to low productivity, kind of more labor intensive uh, so-called services. Um, 
And so that's a kind of important precedent to think about where we are now. Because in some sense, I think the current moment is a kind of, um, what's the word? I mean, a kind of um, playing out over the long term of the implications and consequences of that, re that automation 1.0 that I sort of um, mockingly call it in the book, this idea that there was this period of, of mid-century automation that did have these kind of um, dramatic effects on class composition, on wages, and so on and so forth. But what you saw instead was not mass unemployment, but this kind of reallocation of labor towards towards uh, um, either complementary sectors or, or, or new industries entirely. And so I think that's a key thing to think about is that when we think about what's happening now, where you have a kind of exacerbation or kind of aggravation of a kind of trend um, that's not merely a kind of moment within a kind of short-term business cycle, but a long-term um, working out of some of the contradictions of the capitalist mode of production, um, that what we're experiencing is, is not something that happened in 2008 or 2012 or 2000. It's really a longer term process. And um, so, yeah, maybe, maybe I. Yeah. Yeah. If we, if it's interesting too, and I, a large part of your book, I think is uh, very eloquently uh, devoted to debunking a lot of the, not just boosterism that we get yeah. from the business press, boosterism of itself by capital even too, but just the whole premises of, um, not only what a capitalist economy is and what it does, but how you even measure it. Right. So, you know, you 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 go and you, you talk about uh, the Silicon Valley tech, you know, how it appears as though tech, uh, smartphones, social media, computerization has shored up uh, markets, you know, throughout the, the country and the world, how workers are becoming more productive than ever, that there's this uh, grand abundance of opportunities now. Um, that that is it's kind of the dominant narrative, but you get in there with your with your value critique and uh, you undermine that. So I can't believe you took that away from people. We're all enjoying this tech wonderland so much. Yeah. But tell us a little bit about the <clears throat> the the separation between reality and the rhetoric. Well, I think that you know I'm not going to take away your smartphones, everyone. So don't <laughs> don't worry. Uh, I'm not coming to get them. I know they're essential for your uh you know entertainment and shopping and that sort of thing how um, else are they going to retweet you and i if they don't have cell phones right <laughs> right exactly and i mean and i think that's an important thing to to point out about the uh, at least in terms of the argument of the book because i'm not denying that there would be these kind of massive um there's this kind of massive and not necessarily you know salutary effect of the introduction of certain kinds of technological devices in uh, in our lives, particularly, I mean, and it's not just in, in the, the advanced countries too. I mean, people have self, I mean, in Haiti, there's more cell service than there is like, you know, um, sort of uh, Land traditional lines. landlines and that sort of thing, right? Or they, they, some... jumped, they jumped that step from, from landline. Yeah, exactly, exactly. There, there's no stagism when it comes to, uh, you know, <laughs> when it comes to telecommunications technology, right. um, but also Somalia and places like that. Everyone has a cell, I, I don't know everyone, but the point is that these things are abundant in uh, places that are otherwise considered among the poorest places of the earth. And of course, in our everyday lives, particularly, you know, like, uh, American and Western European uh, people sort of uh, caught up in the kind of meshes of this kind of crisis capitalism. Um, we experience these things all the time. And, and also, so they're very visible in our lives, right? And right. everything seems to depend on them in some sense. Um, but also, of course, they're invisible everywhere too, because all our movements are being tracked at every second, you know, and there's all this data collection that's being kind of scraped out of these uh, 
these acti- or from these activities that we're engaged in and that sort of thing too. And so I think that that's something to keep in mind as well. But I think in terms of ideological, in terms of the ideological projections that that arise from this this idea that our everyday lives have been kind of overturned or ripped apart by these devices. And it's, I, I think it's mostly negative, I have to say. I think mm. most people experience them as kind of negative, like an addiction or something, right? Where it's like there are some, some moments of uh, whatever, sort of like you get a high, but you always are renouncing like <laughs> like every week that fuck that, I'm not going to like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm going to go offline and I'm not going to use my cell phone. Right. And I'm not going to do, I'm not going to like text people while I'm driving with my children <laughs> in the back of the car. And, I, and they I don't s- do it. I swear right? I'm going to find another dopamine hit. You know, I swear. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's very casino. much in a kind of addictive type of um, uh, type of logic or something like that. And I think that, of course, that's no doubt that's that's something built into the technology, um, both intentionally and also kind of like structurally. But I think also, and I should also point out too that you know, of course, the tech companies since 2010 or so, 2011. Uh, have assumed this massively important role in you know the stock market, right? Yeah. And so you have this almost all the gains in the stock market are basically these kind of sort of tech companies. If you if you include Amazon as kind of a tech company or Netflix, some of these other not just the big social media companies. Um, and so that actually plays an important role in people's perception of what's happening in a kind of technological uh, sense of things uh, around them. Um, and, you know, if you if you teach, for example, like, you know, your students tend to see change, social change um, as being driven almost entirely by technological um, uh, devices, you know, new technological yeah. devices. Um, so that's all really, really important. And I don't want to diminish the um, the actual experience that that um, has kind of unleashed on us all. Um, but I also wanted to say, well, you know. Nevertheless, if you look at even the mainstream business press, you see everywhere um, people bemoaning this so-called productivity paradox. Um, This idea, this is something that's formulated as early as 1987 by Robert Sello in a famous, famous statement uh, in the New York Review of Books or something like that. But he says something like the productivity paradox is basically that, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, that I see computers everywhere, but in the productivity statistics. Right. Right. And so the idea, and this is 87, right? In which, you know, none of the shit that we uh, find ourselves kind of uh, uh, dealing with was available, right? I mean, like um, people had these like really janky, like Apple 2Es or whatever right. they were. They, you were know? they were banging away at their uh, disconnected Commodore 64s. Exactly, exactly. Maybe there's a dot matrix printer that you had to kind of have this weird plug, you know, you had to. And so, um, and so that's 1987, right? And so um, all, and, already in 1987, there is this uh, realization then that the fruits of what computerization was meant to do, which is to make all of us more productive, to get more output out of people, and then fundamentally, because of how capitalism works too, uh, those gains would spread through the economy, and people would be able to pay, get paid more, and there'd be the kind of this this churn of like a new uh, a new economic age. You're saying that already by 1987. People saw that that wasn't working out. That wasn't. Yeah, that's that's totally key, right? And I think that that's that trend actually continues well into the present. I mean, what's interesting about that story, um, but it's important to, to to note that that was that idea of a so-called producti- productivity paradox. These mainstream economists, you know, these are not these are not uh, kind of um, uh, you know sort of marginal Marxist people right. like talking about these things. Um, they note that this is the case. Now, there's a kind of complicating part of the story, which is that um, 
in the 90s, early to mid 90s, there was a kind of modest boost in labor productivity. In part, it seems from the computerization of certain kinds of business services, you know, like mm. accounting and that sort of thing. Um, and of course, there's the introduction like of, of uh, radio, um, what's it called, or RFID or whatever it's called, radio right. frequency, uh, those tracking devices, right? Right. Uh, even the use of like barcodes and things like that. These are things that um, that are introduced on a kind of broad scale in the in the early 90s. And so you do see a kind of modest boost in labor productivity gains. But after that, it's I mean, by the time you hit 2000, it's it's the abyss essentially, and um, on on all levels, uh, you you can no matter what sort of you know um, uh, register you're looking at, uh, whether it be GDP growth or labor productivity gains, uh, wages, uh, business investment, so on and so forth, everything just falls off a kind of cliff since 2000. Um, and so that's that's an important thing to reckon with. And I and I should say too that you know within the kind of bourgeois sort of self-understanding, the, the, the bourgeoisie is a class, its own self-understanding, it's kind of split between the booster, the booster type uh, people, which mm. tend to be kind of Silicon Valley business school people, and the kind of secular stagnation people, you mm. know, which tend to be people who um, are quite sinister in some ways, I think, but people who belong to economics departments and often uh, you know, go back and forth to, you know, Federal Reserve or the Treasury or what have you. Yeah, the Larry Summers. Summers of the world. Exactly, exactly. He's the, he's the shorthand for that. Um, and so there is a kind of split there that's kind of interesting within the uh, within the kind of, um, you know, the, the ruling class uh, in terms of how they relate to these these questions. So if there is, um, if the, the fundamental dynamism of capitalism over the last I got owned online yesterday by a lot of people when I said that we are, we've been in an economic depression for 12 and a half years. They're oh, like, it's no, so it's 40 years, 40 years. Oh, okay. Well, that's okay. I thought you were going to say, no, no, we, we've had like full employment since like 2018. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. 40 years. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah, I mean, 40 years. I mean, it, it, it depends on how you measure it because like you said, something happened in the nineties, right? Yeah. And then you had a whole, a whole series of uh, interventions in the 2000s uh, under Bush uh, in order to make sure that credit was far more available, liquidity was there. And this leads to a speculative buying rush of equities. And we all know how that ended up in 2008. But still, like the mainstream liberal bourgeois understanding of, of what happened over the last few years is that uh, we recovered, yeah. right, in 2009. And then what, I guess Trump came in and mismanaged things and then COVID struck and then all of a sudden right. the economy fell apart. But what are the what are the consequences if we look at the last 12 and a half to 40 years, not as a moment of ups and downs in normal business cycles, but instead as like a deep and persistent stagnation with a with a very much declined rate of profit on uh, on business investment? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, you know, there's a lot of debate, obviously, in, uh, around even among especially amongst leftists, I guess, about uh, about the kind of nature of the crisis, but also the kind of uh, how you measure these things and uh, whether or not like. So, so for example, um, you know, there's like this paper that um, I actually read. Actually, I, I first saw it as Paul Matic refers to it. It's quite funny because it's a paper that sort of. Um, I guess it's like 2010, and it's a kind of survey of, of various Marxist accounts of the 2008 crisis, and it's like 10, you know, different, you know, um, scenarios um, by, you know, kind of important Marxist academic uh, 
economist type people. And um, they all are totally split on like, well, okay, in the, uh, in the run up to the 2008 crisis, was the profit rate going up or was it going down, right? And so they're all like, and the super like, no, no, it's in 2004, you know, it was going up in 2004. Then, so there's this kind of like total disarray when it comes to Marxist attempt to um, speak in empirical terms about, right. you know, sort of crisis, right? And that's something that I think is, a, it's not something I really address in the book, but it's something that's important to consider, I think, is that when we think about, you know, a kind of protracted crisis, and if you, and someone like Maddox, for example, I mean, his, his, his take is that we've been in a, a essentially a kind of um, a kind of more or less deep depression since you know <laughs> like since the 30s, right? I mean, like I, <laughs> on some level, you know, there have been like this kind of there's been these various kinds of stopgap measures, global war, you know, kind of massive state expenditures and so on and so forth that have that have you know functioned to defer or in some sense ameliorate um this kind of fundamental sort of crisis situation but i mean i think that the key to understand the notion of kind of a the kind of crisis that we're in is that um if you look at the frequency of the crises that we've experienced since you know the mid 70s let's say since 73 mm -hmm. um they're more and more frequent relative to the historical pattern and that the downturns are much more severe and the upturns are much more shallow than they have been, again, according to the kind of pattern that was established in the 19th century up to the 1930s. And that's a different way of thinking about how to, it's like a more qualitative way to think about how crisis kind of manifests itself, right? And so instead of actually trying to kind of um, wed in some way, the kind of highly abstract crisis theory or crisis theory model that Marx develops, with whatever empirical data that you can scrape up from, you know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics and that right. sort of thing. Um, you, you know, instead, it's a question of not trying to measure it in those terms, but rather think about it as a kind of unfolding uh, tendency within the economy, within which, of course, there's a there's a kind of classical business cycle, but that the shape of the cycle is deformed by this longer term trajectory. And I think that's something that um, some of the debates in, in Marxist whatever online or amongst uh, people who write about these things um or both uh i think that's there's some confusion about that yeah. question and there's been some really admirable attempts to sort of empirically measure the rate of profit people like uh, fred mosley would be the person that first comes to mind but I, I know that you and others might have other people you have in mind um nevertheless i think that's the wrong way to sort of look at the question yeah i would i would sidebar real fast by um agreeing with uh with the elegant take of michael heinrich who says uh, in his introduction to capital that even if there was no tendency of the rate of profit to fall, and even if Marxist economics, and I'm using huge scare quotes right there, yeah. uh, can't actually scientifically empirically figure out uh, what the even the ten uh, trends are in the in the in the profit rate, it would still be necessary to get rid of capitalism even without the the tendency of the rate of profit <laughs> to fall, right? Uh, right? Even even by the standards of capital itself, the thing that it's supposed to do, it can't even do. And we see that right now, you know, efficient allocation of scarce resources for the betterment of all. We're not yeah. seeing that right now. And then th that's leaving aside, of course, the environmental toll and psychological yeah, sure. and social toll of capitalism. But I think that I think it, it's interesting. And I and I and I like how you talked about moving from a sort of quantitative empirical more into a qualitative sort of analysis of of the of the ups and downs of the capitalist, not just cycle, but maybe long term. Uh, stagnations, because I think that 
And this is why I think that your analysis and other Marxist analysis or analyses are very important is because something is happening, right? Something yeah. deeper than Trump, deeper than cabals, deeper than even like deindustrialization or whatever. And we can see it in our, you know, we can see it every every single day in the kinds of jobs that we have, yeah, the benefits totally. of those and the wackiness of our politics and the insanely, um, the insane um like um, attempts of the capitalist class in order to like revive some sort of stability that ultimately looks like in retrospect that it was very um, historically specific, let's say, between the 1930s and 1960s. Yeah. So to stay a little bit on the on the economics question, in order to get around this, uh, this question of, of empiricism, uh, you start to analyze uh, what's called productive labor versus unproductive yeah. labor, right? Different from many of the orthodox economists, certainly, you know, other Marxists, but certainly different than what you would hear on uh, like Econ 101 or on C uh, CSNBC or something yeah. like that. So like, how does your analysis break with this kind of conception of a real economy and like a, a, a Wall Street economy or... Yeah. What what is it what what does it mean that that service work is a very problematic uh, even measurement or, or or category within capitalism? Yeah, I think this is this is a really uh, kind of the center of the book, the kind of theoretical center of the book. And I think that the way you can that people you know have the if they want to look at the book, I mean, one of the ways you can see the unfolding of the argument is that I start from kind of surface phenomena, which everyone more or less agrees on, which is that there's labor productivity. Uh, stagnation, the stagnation of wages, and so on and so forth. Um, I mean, these, these are just data that are widely available, and, uh, and lots of people are talking about them, particularly in places like the Financial Times, The Economist, and that sort of thing. Um, and, but then I try to peel back a little bit the question of what exactly are we talking about? And that leads me to places in particular. One is that I try to examine what productivity would mean in terms that, wouldn't, that would sort of break with what we, you know, think of as kind of mainstream economics, both the, the, the kind of discipline, academic discipline, but also the way that uh, the business press talks about productivity. Um, and, but I also try to question in the same terms, the notion of what the service sector would be, because essentially what, this is kind of hard to sort of um, quickly sort of make my way through this kind of argument, but I mean, in classical political economy, Smith, Ricardo, uh, Marx is a kind of critique of, of this, um, this kind of uh, sort of uh, field of study, but nevertheless assuming some of the basic sort of um, analytical frameworks of, of that, of classical political economy, distinguishes, I mean, it's very clear in, in, in like Smith, for example, if people encounter Smith's work, um, that there's a distinction in the, in the, in the capitalist economy between, between activities that produce value and those that do not produce value. Mm -hmm. And so the question of productivity is not the way that mainstream economists tend to um, understand it, which is basically they, they take uh, something called output, which is measured usually in dollars or some kind of money terms, and they simply divide it by um, the number of or the quantity of labor required to produce that output. And um, of course, this is necessary to do for a lot of reasons, because it's difficult to to measure productivity of, of physical units across different sectors. Like what's what's what is the physical unit that the financial sector produces? For example, you can measure it obviously, you know, the output in terms of the the income in money terms, but you can't measure the the the, the so-called physical output. Right. Um, so all of which to say this basically that um, 
that we need to really think about the economy as divided, not between a manufacturing sector, which is usually high productivity, and a, and a service sector, which is low productivity primarily. And that's what people like William Baumol, a very famous uh, sort of economist, uh, does in a very convincing way in a kind of number of essays. Um, and there's a book, um, this book on the cost disease. Um, he tries to account for the declining aggregate labor productivity uh, in advanced economies by uh, accounting in various ways for this reallocation of labor away from the high productivity um, sectors towards the so-called broad service sector, which is low productivity. So as more and more workers are reallocated to low productivity activities, you see a, a declining aggregate um, uh, rate of low labor productivity gains, if that makes sense, right? Because more and more workers are working in low productivity uh, sectors. But the, but the question is that, you know, fundamentally, the issue that I try to address is that on some level, when we talk about the service sector, we're talking about vastly different kinds of activities, right? So if the financial sector counts as, the, as a service sector activity, um, so does a nurse's assistant, right? And those things differ on many, many levels, right? They differ in terms of obviously wages or, or whatever income, uh, certainly on and certain notions of skill, what counts as highly skilled versus low skill uh, labor, but also in terms of the kinds of activities that produce value and those that don't produce value. And when you distinguish at, at, uh, the, you distinguish or make a distinction between activities, laboring activities in the economy on the, on the basis of whether or not they produce value or not, you can then start to break up the service sector itself and say that what we characterize as the service sector is a purely kind of, um, what's the word, kind of empirical account of the types of laboring activity, right. the types of product that's produced, right? Um, rather than the actual role that those activities play in the circuit of capital or the circuit of kind of valorization. Right. And, um, and so that's the key point I try to make in some sense, in some way, is to try to like um, rethink productivity along the lines of productivity, the, the production of value versus unproductive activities. And then I try to say that the service sector itself has to be understood, not in terms of this big bag of various kinds of activities, but has to be divided between uh, uh, value producing and, and unproductive activities. This, I mean, this is very. This is pitched at a very abstract level, so I'm not. I'm not doing. I, I think our. I think our listeners are up. Are up to it. Okay. They've had, they've had a lot of uh, a prelude to this. I think. With I, yeah. No. <laughs> we trust our listeners. Okay. Well, <laughs> I tried it elsewhere. I try. I try to make it a little clear, but of course, uh, this is the ideal audience for this argument. It so. is. It is. I, I think one of one of the very evocative um, passages of, of your book. Uh, is kind of trying to undermine this broad conception of services by pointing out that both bankers and teachers uh, are are within that service sector, and then pointing out the vast differences in in what they actually do, what their what the labor process is, and also what the results of that are. So that's a good way to look at it. Like if this sector, which is meant to be, you know, the the uh, the largest sector of our economy, can contain yeah, yeah. both bankers on the one hand and teachers on the other, and if as they say, as the economists say, if we're moving more and more towards this sort of post-industrial service economy, how do, how would we even measure it if those two things are comparable? Yeah, and then one of them's in the private sector and one's in the public sector for the most part, right? Teachers, like public school teachers, uh, uh, are, the, are uh, in the public sector, for example. And so um, the kind of pressure, uh, you know, in terms of the, the kind of, the, the market pressures that are experienced by bankers aren't experienced by 
by public schools or public school districts and certainly not by public school teachers, right? And so there's, it's almost entirely, uh, it's kind of, um, it's almost like ludicrous that we would think of them uh, under the same umbrella of the services. Of course, I mean, bankers are always the, the kind of most extreme examples, right? Or people who work in the financial sector because of the type of activity they do, which is the most clearly unproductive activity, right? Like everyone can agree that that what, people do in the financial sector is at best reallocate capital from, you know, from one place in the economy to another one. Right. And there's no actual productive activity happening there, but, you know, teachers, it's a little bit more complicated question, right? Because um, insofar as they uh, primarily are employed in the public sector, they themselves would be characterized as unproductive uh, performing unproductive activities, even though from the, from the kind of use value perspective, we can say that they perform this very, very important role and right. both, you know, sort of educating, uh, preparing young people to enter the workforce, but also taking care of children so that other people can, can go to work and that sort of thing. And so, um, so analytically, you know, like the, you know, the service sector, it's, it, it you, you mentioned 70 to 80%. I mean, I think in some places it's like 85%, you know, mm. it's like, um, and, uh, like the UK in particular, I think has this kind of like the, the industrialization is almost in some sense mo more dramatic there than, than, than here in the US. And um, on some level, if you want to have an actual analysis of um, not only the economy, but also class composition and class struggle and that sort of thing, you have to move away from the notion of a service sector. Um, it's almost totally useless to, to for analytical purposes, but also political purposes, I, I think. Right now. Yeah, uh, we don't want to be organizing bankers alongside t alongside teachers. Yeah, that, exactly. Uh, <laughs> right? I mean, like, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, productive versus unproductive labor doesn't isn't like a moral claim, right? Exactly. Because you see yeah, some exactly. people arguing online, like, well, this person does productive stuff, this person does non-productive stuff. So let's, you know, hold up the one against the other. It's more of analysis of, uh, of as you said, uh, the valorization of of capital. Yeah, and I think it's also it's important to remember that a lot of people do both. <laughs> like, uh, it's it's very difficult. It's the categories in Marxist analysis in general is is pitched at this very abstract level, right? And so you can make a division uh, at the level of the economy as a whole between productive activities and, and unproductive activities. But you start to look at a more empirical level of who's doing what. It's very hard to empirically say. I mean, certainly with bankers, again, it's a it's a good example because it's very clear. Um, but there are a lot of people, a lot of occupations in which people are doing both, right? Like people working in restaurants or retail might be doing both, uh, you know, a single person in a single day, right? And so I think that it's important to to not demonize, uh, or it's yeah, it's not a moral category. It's an attempt to try to understand, in some sense, kind of broad trends or broad tendencies within the economy as a, as a whole. And I think in in my particular case. I think it's important because it's connected to the the idea of a declining profit rate, right? And so Marx, it's a complicated sort of uh, sort of story, but in some sense, it's all that's, complicated with Marx. It's all complicated. yeah, right. Exactly. Again, <laughs> the level of abstraction makes things very very difficult, and we hung we have this kind of hunger for putting our finger on empirical examples and that sort of thing. But but effectively, what Marx allows you to think, and what people like Mosley and and some others have have done, Matic uh, as well, Matic Senior and Matic Junior. Um, is allow us to think about the idea that in some sense, we can think of a declining profit rate as, as being driven by a kind of rise in the ratio of unproductive to productive labor. Right. So that the economy um, increasingly requires more and more unproductive labor to, uh, to, real to somehow, let's say, 
to, well, for the capital relation to reproduce itself, for accumulation to take place. And there are reasons why that's the case that, that I try to examine a little bit, um, uh, maybe not as, as completely as I should have in the book, but nevertheless, that's a really key part of the analysis, I think. And for me, Mosley is, is the kind of touchstone is to really think about why it is that the economy um, requires more and more unproductive activity relative to productive activity and why or in what sense that might affect the profit rate. Um, understood as we were sp speaking a little bit earlier in uh, sort of more qualitative rather than quantitative terms. So, so yeah, it's not a moral question at all. It's, it's a question of trying to understand what, <laughs> what's happening you know, right. in the economy over the, over the last half century. So let's just to put a finer point on this, let's unpack some things. So there's productive versus unproductive labor. Uh, there's industrial labor versus service labor. And then there's also what we mentioned, which is um, high labor productivity work and low productivity or, or stagnant productivity. Right. So these are all connected, right? There's there's some uh, there's some guiding force behind this. Like what yeah. is? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, sorry, I think I interrupted you. No, no, my, my question was over. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I think that I would say that they overlap in certain ways, right? I mean, it is the case that um, a lot of service sector work is unproductive labor. <laughs> like that's, mm. that's certainly the case. Um, and it's also the case that a lot of so-called service sector work is low productivity in, uh, in the kind of mainstream economics of the term. It's not always the case. Um, uh, there's certainly examples, for example, in business services, uh, even though the, the idea of, you know, um, measuring labor productivity in the financial sector and like accounting or legal, you know, that these things have become incredibly, um, uh, I don't know, sort of Baroque and slightly absurd uh, types of questions, you know, and I've certainly seen like uh, examples uh, recently just, you know, uh, sort of poking around in the business press, uh, people sort of, you know, writing articles about the productivity of the financial sector and that sort of thing. So I think that, you know, on some level, the the distinction between, you know, manufacturing and and, uh, and services or and the process, let's say, of reallocating labor massively toward um, the service sector, um, which is described sometimes as deindustrialization, is a really, really important uh, phenomenon and should be taken, you know, in some sense on its own terms. And it has it has real effects on on wages and on um, class composition and the fragmentation of the class, uh, the working class. Um, but it doesn't allow you that kind of distinction, that analytical distinction, which we which is so kind of intuitive for us. Um, although we, you know, it's intuitive until you start thinking, what is the relationship between you know uh, childcare and banking? You know, it right, starts yeah. to be uh, less intuitive. Um, nevertheless. Um, that uh, that level of analysis has to be sort of, in some sense, gone beyond or has to be or those categories have to be kind of readjusted to answer other kinds of questions. Um, and again, that's in, in the book, I basically there's like three parts, maybe you could say there's this kind of like attempt to start at this kind of surface description of what's happening in the economy. A kind of attempt in the middle chapters to sort of deal with more these more theoretical questions. Um, which, uh, you know, sort of address primarily kind of Marxist or kind of rewrite in some sense the kind of mainstream descriptions of what's happening uh, in, in kind of Marxist categories and sort of try to follow through the consequences of that rewriting. And then the last third of the, the, um, the book in some sense deals with class and class struggle and the prospects for class struggle in an economy in which um, 
the vast majority of the, you know, the workforce is working in smaller workforces or smaller workplaces, excuse me, um, mobilizing less capital. Um, and, uh, as opposed to, you know, massive industrial complexes where there's just right. these huge kind of, uh, um, sort of masses of capital, right? Like, um, that can be sort of arrested, the motion of which can be arrested, uh, in, uh, through work stoppages and so on and so forth. Um, to, so to try to think about that question of like, you know, um, what are the kind of political and social implications of the analysis that I try to develop in the middle of the book? So, and one of the um, one of the, the the important questions on the topic of class struggle, right, is that so much of um, of this analysis, productive versus unproductive, and kind of the the rise of a, a greater appropriation of the social surplus in mm -hmm. like non-value producing parts of the economy. Um, they're like. Our, our politics looks back off into the 1930s to the 1960s or yeah, maybe 1973 as yeah. uh, models for how change happens and how we create a more just world. But as we've laid it out, social democracy, as it were, of the 20th century arose in very particular and different historical conditions from today. So if it's true that there is a, a stagnant, a declined rate of profit, uh, what does this mean for individuals at uh, their workplaces and then also ultimately for the class struggle? Yeah, well, I think that's really, really important um, point to make about both the book, but maybe some of the, the broader political thinking that's happening in that kind of milieu you described earlier, this one that we both sort of, sort of seem to be a part of, or at least sort of feel an affinity for, um, which is to say the, the, the kind of dead end of the, the project of social democracy. I think it's a really, really key question um, for uh, the book, but also for just more broadly thinking about the um, the next you know decade or two or maybe more. Um, and it's certainly you know dealing with the contemporary left, of course, it's totally enamored with this vision of social democracy, which, as you say, really is rooted in, well, sometimes it's rooted in some kind of fantasy of like the Nordic, uh, you know, model or whatever it is. Um, but I think that more broadly, it's rooted in this idea that um, uh, that there's a kind of moment within the middle of the 20th century in which uh, a highly organized labor force was able to to take on capital and to win, uh, you know, uh, higher wages, social security, healthcare, and so on and so forth. Stability and, and dignity and all that stuff. Exactly, exactly. And I think that, you know, of course, that's a totally admirable thing to want to uh, to revisit. And also, I think it's important to to recognize that those those um, uh, the, the welfare state, more broadly speaking, or social democracy, uh, uh, maybe in more narrow sense of the term, um, were won through workers' struggles. You know, it was it's not simply it's a more complex. It's a it's full of contradictions. It's more complicated. But it's not simply a gift that was given by the by the state. It was a response to a kind of rising intensification of of struggle between capital and labor. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the fundamental question is this: What were the as you as you rightly point out? What, what were the material conditions that made that possible? So, in my relatively um, simplistic schema in the book, but I think this is argument is really really powerful one on some level. Um, is that um, the wage gains, whether we understand that as like direct compensation or kind of the the form it takes with the with um, uh, with the welfare state, right? In which you have kind of indirect wage gains in the form of, of of healthcare and social security and unemployment insurance and so on and so forth. That these were essentially dependent upon a period of rapid um, 
rapid growth in labor productivity in the post-war period in particular. Um, that's certainly the case in the US, but it's also, in, I think, even more dramatically the case in Western Europe. Um, and it's clear too, in Western Europe, maybe the scenario is a little bit more clear in some sense because of the way that the capital labor relation was organized uh, at the level of the state. So that what you see there, um, oftentimes at the national level, these things are organized at the national level, is that a certain piece, I mean, these are places, you know, like in France and Italy where like they were like, you know, vibrant uh, and real communist movements, right? Um, largely tied to the Third International and so on and so forth, but people that are coming out of the resistance who are armed, right? And, in, you know, they, they pose a real threat to the stability of the kind of bourgeois state in the post-war period. And so what you see basically are, is a kind of arrangement or a kind of state brokered peace between labor and capital in which wage gains, broadly speaking, um, are tied to productivity gains, right? And it's very, very clear oftentimes in these kind of nationally uh, organized labor contracts uh, in which, um, you know, let's say the automobile industry in Italy um, will, uh, will uh, the wage gains in the automobile industry will be tied to productivity gains, right? right. And they're, they're directly correlated. And what's interesting about that is that, you know, oftentimes it's the, at the level of the state, it's a kind of um, left uh, government or a government that has a sizable left sort of component to it um, and these kind of parliamentary systems. But also the kind of labor unions, um, the role they play in not only, um, let's say, drawing up this piece, this contractual piece between you know, wages and productivity, but also enforcing it um, is a key factor in what we understand social democracy to have been. Yeah. was that the, the role of the labor unions was to, in some sense, implement and enforce this peace between capital and labor by means of this this idea of a, a kind of correlation between wages and productivity. And the, and the unions, especially in the United States, played a very similar role. I mean, exactly. You could look at uh, the Treaty of Detroit from 1955, where explicitly in this five-year contract between the United Auto Workers and the, yeah. the big three automakers, um, Increasing labor productivity was tied to increasing wages explicitly within that. So right. that, that was when people talk very vaguely or abstractly about this truce or this peace between labor and capital, the terms of that were pretty well set and pretty open. Right. Or like right. pretty, pretty clear for everybody to see. Right. As we as we become more productive, as ultimately more capital is used more intensively in these uh, in these processes, the worker will share of that. So if the let's just throw out some numbers, if there's, um, you know, six dollars more that the company's making, the worker will get three and then the, pro exactly. the rest of the profits right. will go with the with the union taking a small bit there, too. But that but right. But, but go back to your story. So this, so so this was how this truce was organized in the in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, well, and you know, I think the the, the American example you give is really really a good one because if you read, uh, uh you know, um, James Boggs's book, The American Revolution, it's precisely about this moment of 1955 because what you saw, you know, and the, in some sense, the death of the union, capital U, which for him is like the CIO and more generally the kind of wave of wildcat strikes from the you know the late 30s uh through the war in fact there's massive yeah. massive uh sort of um uh what's the word like um this kind of occurrence you know like really frequent occurrence of these these really important wildcat strikes throughout the war which was 
uh, really it, important. It's even more important to do that during a war because the propaganda and the stakes are so high. Workers were so militant at that point, they weren't even listening to the no-strike pledge propaganda exactly. from the unions and from the bosses. Exactly. And that's really fascinating uh, historical. Um, it's much more interesting <laughs> in, in a lot of ways than, than the other kind of fantasies about social democracy and, and uh, the gains of the um, of the post-war period in some senses, right. this kind of, this sort of relatively subterranean history of, of labor militancy throughout that period. And I think that's why people like uh, Marty Glaberman and, and Boggs are really represent like very important touchstones for American revolutionaries or, you know, American communists. Um, but I guess I, I think that the, the point is simply um, the one that you make, that, that on some level materially um, productivity gains um, allow for a rise, you know, a kind of um, rise in, in uh, purchasing power or whatever you want to call it of the working class and a rise in, in, in absolute terms of the profits, of, of, of corporate profits. But what stays stable is the share of income uh, or how that income is divided between capital and labor. And so if, the, so if the labor share of income basically remains the same relative to capital, but in absolute terms, it rises, right? And that's the kind of basic... Uh, you know, you know, uh, sixth grade math that has to be sort of worked out to think through what's uh, um, what's at stake in this idea of labor productivity gain. So, in some sense, if if I overemphasize this question um, in my book, it's partly because I, I I wanted to revisit this same historical period that we're talking about that the people on the social democratic left or whatever. Uh, whatever you want to call them, um, are also kind of interested in. But I want to, <laughs> I want to make a, a slightly different point about this moment. So Yeah, that's, that's good stuff. That was a very fascinating part of the book. And I think it opens up a broader discussion that we can have here for a bit, which is um, if, if, the, if the, the, the labor productivity is not available, as you made clear in your book, hasn't been for the last 40 years, not only does it have great explanatory power, for uh, where we as workers are today. But it also makes the stakes of fighting as a class far different because it, you can only have a truce, of course, if both parties are benefiting from this. But it makes sense how vociferously capital and by extension politicians fight against unions nowadays because yeah. there isn't a bigger pot. you know, There isn't a bigger slice of the pie to be passed around. And I think personally, and I, you might agree with me on this, that doesn't mean that we stop fighting for like incremental and real gains, not either through the state or obviously against capital. But I think it, it should change the way that we think about what those gains mean. If we're trying to fight and go back to the 1950s, we're going to find that the deal to be made is going to be so much more difficult because in a real sense, you now have a zero-sum struggle between labor and capital. Capital can't give something that it doesn't have, which is to say that any attack on capital is going to be taken out of their profits. And as we know, they will literally fight to the death over that. So it changes the way we think even about reformist struggles, I think. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely uh, the sort of bottom line of, of the kind of analysis which I, I propose, right, is that if it's a zero-sum relationship, then what would any sort of, you know, um, gains in wages on the class of the working class would come directly out of profits, right? It's not mediated by these productivity gains. And so that kind of zero sum scenario um, or, or situation, as you as you suggest, is going to give rise to a kind of like violent response on the mm -hmm. part of capital. And they will do everything in their means, including sort of flirt with fascism or whatever they need to do. Um, to ensure that the, the 
whatever the the kind of uh, labor share of income, broadly speaking, doesn't affect profits, right? And so I think that's really really important. Of course, it doesn't mean that that one doesn't struggle in the workplace. I think individual workplaces struggle or individual sectors struggle uh, based on their immediate needs, right? In some sense, and their immediate experience of of um, the capital labor dynamic in the workplace. But I just mean that at the political horizon, I think changes uh, considerably if you want to think about the the viability of a kind of social democratic politics of this, the post-war mm. kind. And I think that's sort of what I, 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 I don't think it should be thought of as a kind of a, a bleak or anything like that. But I do think that, um, I think that coming to terms with the material conditions that made possible those gains in the past and the erosion of those conditions in the subsequent 50 years is just a basic historical responsibility, right? To think about like what is possible in the present. The one thing I do want to say too, um, just as a minor footnote, is that zero sum kind of game that that the economy seems to be sort of um, playing out now um, also entails not only intense kind of conflict between capital and labor, but also conflict within different um, fractions of the of the property yes. owning class, right? Yeah. I mean, the financial sector was, in, you know, and so I think that's something that you see a little bit um, also in terms of thinking about like American politics and how kind of scrambled and fucked up they are. Um, I think that that the political, I mean, I, I'll be extremely crudely Marxist. I mean, like in a kind of way that. Um, is unacceptable please, for please all be, your. Be but vulgar. I mean, on some level, there is a kind We're of, sense of the political sector and the kind of dynamism or the dynamics of the political sector are are determined in some kind of very not not a direct kind of causal relationship, but they're determined by these kind of changing material conditions. And again, it's not simply capital labor relations, but also between fractions of capital. And and to sort of think that you know, as we were talking about a little bit earlier, that Trump is the problem or whatever you know, or that Trump is uh, as as um, I mean, you know, I don't know. I, I don't or know. Even, or even Biden and the Democrats, right? Yeah, There's right, a huge right. discussion right now in the United States about trying to, like, give more voice to the progressives within the Democratic Party. Oh, and that's how, hilarious. Though, you right? know, the, the force the vote sort of thing. But ultimately, it's also it's also overdetermined, right? I mean, I think that's something that um, that's interesting to me is that if you look at one of the, the main struggles that the unions and the social Democrats democratic left in this country have fought for and nobly because i think this is a very noble goal and would be great for so many millions of people is fight for 15 right a 15 dollar an hour minimum wage that would practically double right the minimum wage in this country and change tens of millions of people's right. lives if you look at it from even the standpoint of capital or for, as the the standpoint of the collective capitalists or even the state it's uh a $15 an hour minimum wage would be very, very salutary for them right now, because one of the uh, things you mentioned in your book are these zombie corporations, yeah. right? These ones that are spending, basically, they, they can barely even cover the debt service from how much right, exactly. uh, they've borrowed. They're, what needs to happen, and I think this is a political question maybe we can talk about, what needs to happen is a great shakeout of unproductive capitals. What oh, yeah, needs sure. to happen, what needed to happen for the last 40, maybe 12 to, to 40 years is that a lot of these um, these stagnating sectors of the economy uh, need to be forced in order to increase the productivity like the other sectors did, but for a variety of reasons can't. So like, it's interesting to me that the fight for 15 thing is actually a remedy to some aspects of this crisis that we're in now. And yet capital on the state 
sections of the state fight it vociferously. And I think that's that goes back to the zero sum, not just the zero sum aspect that we we're talking about, but also like the dissolution of any ruling class plan. Yeah. You know, this desultory quality to to like the policies of the ruling class with no kind of forward looking vision. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that I don't know when we can date the kind of disarray within the working class's strategic horizon. If you read all the great like kind of leftist stuff from the 60s and 70s, particularly like, uh, you know, stuff that's coming out of the the, the kind of the, the situations international or, or whatever, or even let's say someone like Mario Tronti, to give an example of someone who who I, I've read recently with great pleasure, they have such a kind of really, really um, precise sense of the the ruling class as a kind of strategic actor Yes. within the historical battlefield, right? And what's the great, um, God damn, I'm, I'm, excuse my <laughs> my confusion here, but what is the um, the book that's written, uh, it was written anonymously, um, Sanguinetti's book, mm. he wrote in the in the mid seventies, right? That was, was published under the name Censor, that was kind of his pseudonym. And basically it's something like um, one last attempt by the bourgeoisie to save capitalism. And it's this kind of strategic vision that he lays out, that's actually totally hilarious and beautiful. Um, that, you know, basically argues that the strategic compromise uh, with the Communist Party as a kind of partner in the in the kind of um, strategic initiative to save capitalism is a necessary, you know, uh, scenario that has to be played out by the the, the property uh, owning class in, in Italy. These are kind of a, there's a certain assumption that there's a consolidation of the ruling class as a kind of historical actor an agent, usually through the mediation of the class, or excuse me, through the state, right. that has, seems to have totally um, disintegrated since, you know, maybe since since the 80s. I mean, you could say that, well, okay, the kind of Volcker shock plus the kind of Reagan-Thatcher attack on unions was a very, you know, clear, um, aggressive sort of frontal attack on the part of capital against labor. And that's probably true uh, on, on some basic historical level, of course, how that happened and why it happened might be different depending on your perspective. But certainly since maybe what, in the 90s or something like that, there is this sense, certainly since 2008, there's this kind of total disarray on the part of the, the ruling class. And to some extent, I think that um, our political situation is precisely that. Yes. The kind of, the kind of um, incoherence of the political state, because it really is incoherent. Um, and, and it's also, it, it's at an impasse. You know, there's yeah. <clears throat> there's no actual plan. There's no there's no plan, but there's also no understanding of the sort of things that we're talking about. So no plan could even be crafted, right? Yeah. So you have this deep historical impasse, very similar, I'd say, to like 1789 in France or like 1917 in Russia, um, where like the ruling class can't even figure out for itself what to do and can't even propose a way forward that's coherent and will deal with the sort of conditions that exist on the ground. Yeah, and I think that... Um... Yeah, it's interesting because 1789, and maybe that's that might be right. I mean, it's it's hard to figure out the exact historical analogy, but I mean, I did. I mean, you know, we took up this way forward or this kind of vision that the ruling class doesn't have. I mean, I guess the one thing, it's not a, it doesn't contradict that. But what I would say is that you know, certainly in March when there was the the huge spending plan that was arrived at, very very quickly, right? There was a kind of massive spending bill that was like right. you know. Three billion dollars or trillion dollars, excuse me. <laughs> Those numbers are so large that there's I, a, there's, it, there's it, more there's more going on there, yeah. Right. Um, but certainly, the, you know, the idea is that the, the the congressional the bill that passed passed through Congress was arrived at very very quickly, like yeah. in, a, in a matter of a week or something like that. Plus, the Fed, of course, pumped you know another three trillion dollars into the economy, 
And there was a sense in which there was a consensus there that was kind of very interesting to me. Is that there wasn't a great debate about it. There was a sense of urgency and the entire political class seemed to agree this was the path forward. Um, and I think that one of the things we can agree on uh, in terms of the kind of minimal consensus of the, the ruling class and the political class is that, you know, there is no solution at the level of the economy itself, the, the kind of so-called real economy. Um, and so the only real, and you can see this actually in Larry Summers, uh, you know, millions of little like, you know, 800 word pieces on the, on secular stagnation is that there is a kind of um, agreement that basically quasi infinite uh, quantitative easing, as uh, Jay Powell put it, um, is the only way forward, which is to say that the only way forward is to pump massive amounts of money into the economy so that while the rest, you know, the, the, the economy that employs people and, and so on and so forth and produces goods and services that meet the needs of the population and so on and so forth, um, that that economy um, sort of decomposes uh, sort of relentlessly over the course of decades. Nevertheless, we're going to continuously prop up, first of all, the zombie companies you mentioned, mm -hmm. um, which haven't been kind of washed out of the, of the drain trap. Um, but also quite a bit, the, the, the asset bubbles are absolutely yes. essential. And everyone agrees that under no circumstance can those asset bubbles be allowed to deflate, right? I mean, they're going to yeah. pop probably according to whatever the internal dynamics of the financial sector anyway. But I think that's something that's very important. It's like the, the, there's monetary policy and there's pumping up the asset bubbles. And that's the only that's the only political horizon for the ruling class. Yeah, which is a very short term one because it reminds me of. I think the last time we saw uh, the ruling class really get its act together quickly, which was the bailout plan in 2008. Right. When uh, Henry Paulson famously said to Trump, this sucker's going down. Yeah, right. And all of a sudden, uh, the Senate and the House were able to come together, not without some wrinkles. It's a push. Remember, like, uh, I think he said to Trump, which is funny. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, you know, it's all the same on some level. Let's be serious, you know. Well, you know, neither of them really had a, I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, um, yes, I meant Bush, of course. Like, yeah, of course. there were some wrinkles in it. I think the House Republicans voted down the first plan. But then very quickly, Paulson and people from the Treasury and from the Fed and economic advisors went into the halls of Congress and said, you have to give $90 billion now or there's going to be no economy yeah. left. Yeah. And very quickly, the ruling class could come together and formulate a bailout package. But, and I think there's an essential difference in something similar you see today, is that the solution to that was merely to double down on the same problem. Exactly. Right? You had all this, this asset valuation, you had all this cheap lending, you had all this money floating around. And the solution to that was to bail out the banks and prop up that same disastrous, distorted sort of economics that we had previous to that. And what is this but exactly the same? I think in your book, you mentioned that the fangs, right? So the yeah. Facebook, Amazon. I love that acronym. Yeah, it's really good because they are very evil. They're like little fucking snakes. <laughs> Poison injecting snakes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> little fucking demons. Um, <laughs> they they they're at the top of the pecking order. And if you if you look at their asset price value valuation, so their stocks, their equities, uh, that's where all of this quote unquote growth is coming from right now. While the rest of the, the Fortune 500 is an absolute disaster with either stagnant profits or very low profits or in some case losing money. Yeah. So the um, this asset price bubble, as you said, cannot be popped. And that's not a plan, right? It's not a plan yeah. to simply keep pumping liquidity in and hoping for the best. I guess you turn up, you turn into like Japan, I guess, which is like 30 yeah. years into a, into a stagnant economy with like low employment and interest rates. Yeah, interest rates. So, so that's not a plan, right? Right, exactly. 
but that's the thing. It's it's you know I guess it's like bailing uh, bailing water out of the ship or something. I don't know exactly what the proper metaphor is. Um, uh, is but there is a sense in which it's not an um, it's not an, a structural solution, but rather an attempt, more or less a political attempt on the part of the class to ensure that its own assets remain valued, you know, right. like artificially, quote unquote, um, by these kind of monetary operations. And I think that that's, it's, I mean, that's what it looks like to me. You know, it's like, of course, that's what they're doing, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, like, no, of course, as I've thought about it, and, uh, and this is like, a, just kind of a sketchy analysis, but I feel as though the labor unions and like the left in general in the United States, which doesn't really exist much anymore, or at least not in the halls of power, um, served a sort of regulatory function within the political economy of the country, where there was like a check to the um, unalloyed, unadulterated power of the capitalist class. But now that there's no alternative, there's not even a social democratic alternative except for like Bernie and four other Congress people, right? Yeah, exactly. yeah. Capital seems to now have like captured the government, but to its own detriment, because there's no other force to say, like, actually, no, we have to liquidate these. This has to be liquidated. We, we need right. to wash this out. Because there isn't that force, it's like a complete rule of the ruling class, but at the same time, a ruling class that's so self-interested in that, literally keeping themselves afloat, yeah. that no positive political program or change can even happen because they've captured all the levers. Yeah, I, it's absolutely. Yeah, I think I totally agree with that. And I, I think that on some level, the question of um, of letting a kind of shakeout sort of unfold is something that you would expect that at least some fraction of the ruling class would put forward. Right. It's like yeah. something that because um, I mean, that's clearly what what, you know, the, the classical liberal perspective would be. Right. Is the market has to somehow regulate itself by dumping um, garbage companies. Right. Game yeah, we're game, going, game going back. Yeah, we're going back to Mellon, liquidate farmers, liquidate workers, liquidate yeah. businesses. You know, the, the, famous, the famous uh, Herbert Hoover plan of the 19th right, Exactly. Well, that's the problem, right? It's like there's the kind of trauma of Herbert Hoover uh, in 1932 or whatever it is that surely must kind of uh, still resonate in the bones of that class, right? And that on some, on some level, they know that without the kind of machinations of kind of artificially propping up this kind of private economy through whatever form of state expenditure, um, primarily military and, uh, and uh, bailing out companies and so on and so forth, that the, the consequences to the class itself will be so catastrophic that um, they can only, <laughs> they can't countenance the idea of a kind of a real shakeout, right? And so, so that's the entire history of the post-war period in the US and in the Western Europe is, is this kind of growing, um, uh, what's the word, kind of growing, role that the state plays in managing on some level a kind of private economy that becomes more and more fragile and more and more incapable of reproducing itself. And I think that's, that's, that's I mean, I wonder if it's really, you know, 90 years of uh, what it was kind of a phylogenetic trauma, right? Where this like, you know, great grandpa told those stories about Herbert Hoover or something like that. He was reusing, he was reusing tea bags and yeah, saving exactly. his aluminum foil. Do we want to go back to that era? Right. Yeah, no, eating dirt. Um.